Let's jump into God's Word, but before we do so, let's pray. Father, thank you for your presence here this morning. Thank you that you show up in our lives even even when we are who we are. Thank you that you love us enough to send your Son who came willingly and, and showed us what it means to live, to sacrifice, and what it means to have life, real life. Pray, Father, as we open your word today that you would speak in a great way. Eliminate distractions and allow us to hear clearly and not only hear but respond. In Christ name I pray. So we've been talking about faith and family. I'm going to continue along with that theme today and we've been talking about loving God but specifically loving our neighbor, loving the people, loving those people outside this place. And I want to share a verse with you that I ran across a couple of weeks ago that I thought was pretty powerful. It comes from Psalm 142. Here's the way it reads. It says, look at my right hand and see. There's no one who takes notice of me. Have you ever felt that way? There's no one who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one who cares for me. And I thought, wow, that is a powerful verse, but it's also a powerful way to look at life. Sometimes life is not what it's cracked up to be. Would you agree? Today I want to talk to you about loving others, but I want to talk to you about loving friends. Now you may think that has nothing to do with family, and I would respectfully disagree because when we talk about loving God and loving our brother and loving our friends, by the way, how many of you have good friends? How many of you have a lot of friends? I'm not talking about your Facebook page. That's not the kind of friend I'm talking about. Friends are valuable. Friends are something that we can't get through life without having. And yet sometimes I think that we are convinced by the enemy, we are convinced by the world that we can be as independent as possible, and still live a God-honoring life. I think that's a lie. So we've been talking about relationships and faith, specifically family and faith. But I want to start this morning with talking to you about loneliness. Loneliness is prevalent in our world. Whether you know it or not, uh, loneliness is something that we all experience from time to time. Either we live that way, we deny it, or we're just not aware of it. I think it's important for us to remember that everyone has a story. In other words, you may be sitting next to somebody here this morning who is lonely. There may be people in your family that are lonely. This weekend, as Kim mentioned, kind of signifies the beginning of summer, and there will be many people gathered around barbecue grills, and there will be family times, and there are lonely people despite the gatherings. Kids go to school and they don't fit in, and they're lonely. Did you know that the suicide rate among teens is as high as it's ever been? And why is that? Because many teens will tell you they're lonely. Spouses share the same bed, but sometimes they're lonely. Loneliness is a major problem in our world. 
The magazine Psychology Today represents or reports seven types of loneliness. Seven, seven types of loneliness. The list begins with what's called new location loneliness, where someone moves to a new location and knows no one. Do you think that's significant for us in Collin County? For those of us in McKinney? You probably have new neighbors, whether you know them or not. Perhaps they're lonely. Perhaps part of their story is reaching out, but they don't know where to reach out to. They don't know their neighbors. And have you taken an active interest in their story, in their lives? Have you tried to overcome their loneliness? Also on the list is what's called untrustworthiness loneliness. Again, untrustworthiness loneliness. How many of you have been burnt by friends in the past? We all have. And sometimes because we've been burnt, and we've been burnt, and we've been burnt, then we don't invest in anybody else, right? We become gun-shy. And so we have the temptation to shy away from relationship. And can I tell you that Satan wants nothing more than for you to shy away from relationship. Those of you who were here last week will remember this little scenario, this little illustration I tried to present when I had Kim and Given and Brandon up here in front. The whole point of that illustration, even if you weren't here, the whole point of the illustration is that Satan would try to get us alone and try to destroy us if we're alone. But if, if one or two people gather and protect that one person who Satan is attacking, it's much more difficult for Satan to do what Satan wants to do. And yet loneliness is just as prevalent in the church and among believers as it is in the world. We say things that are spiritual or sound really spiritual, that I'm not alone, that I walk with Jesus, and that's all well and good, and I I can appreciate that. I don't want to minimize that, and yet at the same time, we don't just love God, but we love one another. We need each other. You've heard me say that before. I need you, and you need me. In other words, the prayer list is not just an opportunity to participate in gossip. It's actually to call and check up on people. It's to love on people. I guess what intrigues me about the article in Psychology Today is remembering the first step to overcome loneliness is to admit you're lonely at times and to be intentional about reaching out for companionship. Because if you don't reach out for companionship, especially in our day and time, you'll remain lonely. And loneliness is a horrible, horrible, horrible way to live. So I ask you again, how many friends do you have? I'm not talking about weather conversations. I'm not talking about, hi, how are you? I'm fine, how are you? I'm fine. A couple of liars there. I mean, we're not talking about acquaintance. Acquaintance is this idea that everything is on this surface level. But I'm talking to you about loving your friend at a deeper level. I'm talking about you exposing yourself to the sense that they will love you anyway. Now, if you have your Bibles, if you'll turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18. I want to show you a couple of pictures of friends in Scripture. As you're turning there, let me offer this to you. I've had very few friends, what I call close friends in my life. And what I mean by close friends are those people that know me, not know about me, but know me. They know everything about me, and yet they love me anyway. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about relationships at, a, at an arm's length. I'm talking about people that you live with, not maybe in the same house, but 
but they know you, you know them. You can call them in the middle of the night and say, hey man, I'm really struggling right here. I'm really, really struggling right now. Can you pray? Can you walk with me? That's the kind of friendship I think that God wants us to have with not 10 people, not 50 people, not 100 people, not how many of our friends I have, quote unquote, friends I have on Facebook. We convince ourselves that those acquaintances are friends when they're really not. So here in 1 Samuel chapter 18, there's a picture of a couple of friends. Some of you will know the name Jonathan. Jonathan would be considered one of David's friends. He's not just King Saul's son, but he's also one of David's friends. I want you to think about Jonathan as a friend for a second. Jonathan is about going above and beyond for his friend David. If you don't know your Old Testament history, Saul is the king that God gives the Israelites because they want to be like all the other nations. And Samuel, who is the prophet, goes to God again and again and again, and he says, God, these people are so ignorant. They're so dumb. They're so slow of learning. And they want a king just like the other nations. And the only reason they want a king just like the other nations is because they want to be like the other nations. And God finally says, give them what they want. And so Samuel says, go ahead. And hence we have King Saul. And Saul is, he begins okay, but he turns out he's not a very good king. In fact, in a lot of ways, he's just a business guy. He's a politician. He kind of leads by his own strength and not God's strength. And oftentimes Saul gets out in front of God and he expects God to bless what the Israelites are doing just because of their power. And God works behind the scenes, if you will, and tries to redirect Saul in a lot of different ways and try to get them to understand that, Saul, this is about me. It's not about you, Saul. There's one particular time where the Philistines, who were enemies of the Israelites, are face-to-face with the Israelites, and Saul has his Israelites out there, and the Philistines are out there against the Israelites, and there's this big giant that you've all heard about called Goliath, and He comes out day and night, and he taunts the Israelites. And the Israelites don't know what to do. Saul, the leader, doesn't know what to do. And eventually Jesse sends his son out to check on what's going on. And as you know, David slings the shot and right in the forehead. And the Philistine giant falls over. And everybody celebrates, and they all live happily ever after, right? Not so fast. This begins the real tension between Saul and David because every time that Saul would lead the Israelites and every time there was David who has begun a relationship with Saul because after all, if I'm successful, you want to make him your right-hand man. That's exactly what Saul does with David. But Saul also notices the problem with David because every time they go to a town, the people would clamor, Saul has killed his thousands, but... David has killed his tens of thousands. Sounds pretty good if you're David, not so much if you're Saul. So there's jealousy going on. There's this bitterness going on. To the add to the story, this sounds like a Young and the Restless or Days of Our Lives. To add to the story, there's Saul's son, Jonathan. And Jonathan has a certain affinity. Jonathan has a certain friendship. Jonathan wants a certain relationship with David because they're both about the same age, and he recognizes that God has been with David. And so here's what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 18. It says, When David had finished speaking to Saul, 
The soul of Jonathan, catch these words. This is the NRSV, but he says, the soul of Jonathan was bound to the soul of David. We're talking about friendship here, okay? We're not talking about acquaintance. We're not talking about weather conversation. Hi, how are you doing? No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about his soul was bound to his friend. That's much, much deeper than just weather conversations. Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took David that day and would not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that he was wearing. Now catch this. Jonathan, who is an heir to the king, is so devoted, so devoted to his friend David, that Jonathan strips himself of the robe that he was wearing and gives it to David in his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. As a result, Saul set him over the army and all the people, even the servants of Saul, approved. How many friends do you have? I mean friends like this that are totally devoted to you. Regardless of how you act, they, they, know, you're, they know good things about you, they know bad things about you, and yet they're still your friend, right? This is love. I love these phrases here in the NRSV. and It says, Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Jonathan makes covenant with him. That word covenant, that word berit, this, this idea is more than a promise. It's this, I'm responsible to you. I, I, I want to be totally devoted to you. Why? Because I, I love you as my own soul. I think we could learn a lot from the friendship between David and Jonathan. Now, if you're there, turn over a couple of chapters to chapter 20. I mentioned to you that Saul would have some jealousy between he and David. I mean, Saul knew that his end was, was coming, but he didn't want to fast forward the process. And so David finds out that Saul is trying to kill him. And he goes to his good buddy Jonathan and he says, Hey, your dad's got a problem. He's trying to kill me. And Jonathan said, No, I would, I would tell you everything. I, remember, remember, I love you like my own soul. I, I would tell you everything. Everything, John? Yes, everything. Even, even if my dad says he's about to kill you, I, I'm going to tell you everything. Well, here in chapter 20, I'm going to read pretty quickly because you probably are aware of this, this account, but this is a picture of this devotion that David has with Jonathan, or Jonathan has with David. David fled from Nioth and Ramah. He came before Jonathan and said, What have I done? What is my guilt? What is my sin against your father that he's trying to take my life? Jonathan said, far be it from, far from it. You shall not die. My father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? Never. But David also swore, your father knows well that you like me, and he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this or he will be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, there's but a step between me and death. And Jonathan says to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. In other words, yeah, he's my dad, but I'm totally devoted to you. Now, if you know the rest of the story, this is where Jonathan sends David to a certain place. And he says, I'm going to talk to Saul, I'm going to talk to my dad, and if he's out to get you, then I'm going to shoot three arrows, right? And if I tell this messenger to go farther, that means stay away. But if I tell him the arrow is right there, then you come close, that everything's safe. But the point I'm trying to make is this total devotion of friendship. 
Do you have people in your life that you're totally devoted to? I'm not talking about your spouse. I'm talking about male to male, female to female, just like we talked about last week. Somebody that's in your corner. Somebody that is a prayer warrior. Somebody that knows you inside and out and still loves you and loves you anyway. Do you have people like that? Most of us guys don't because we were raised in a way, in a, in a way that we pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. We're fixers. And the last thing that Satan wants us to do is disclose my garbage to somebody else, and so I just keep it to myself. And before I know it, I'm imploding. Do you have people in your life that you're totally devoted to? Do you have people in your life that are devoted to you? There's another example I want to show you about friendship, and it comes in the book of Job. You remember Job? Remember the story of Job? Job is considered blameless and upright, if you remember, in chapter 1. And yet through this interesting dialogue between the enemy, Satan, and God, God says you can do anything you want to Job with the exception of taking his life. There's certain limitations to Satan's power. And Satan goes as far as he can without taking Job's life. He takes his wife, he takes his children, he takes everything. When I say wife, he, he takes the good portions of his wife. She, she's not much of a, an encourager, let's just say that. Takes all his children, he takes all his possessions. He's a wealthy man, and everything is gone overnight. Yet he's considered blameless and upright in chapter 1. And then we have the three friends of Job. I love this text. This is chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. It says, Now when Job's three friends heard of all these troubles that had come upon him, each of them set out from his home, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Namathite. When your friend's in trouble, what do you do? You pick up the phone, you call him, you say, Hey, I'll be praying for you. No, that's not what you do. You go. You catch that? And they met together to go and console and comfort him. Sounds good so far. When they saw him from a distance... It was so bad they didn't recognize him, the scripture says. And they raised their voices and they wept aloud and they tore their robes and they threw dust in the air upon their heads. You know what the scripture says about friendship, about loving your friend? When your friend is in trouble, when your friend is suffering, what do you do? You suffer. When they're in turmoil, when they're grieving, you grieve with them, right? Isn't that the purpose of a, of a funeral? You, you don't go for the deceased, do you? Maybe out of respect. But ultimately, your, your motivation for going should be for the family. So far, so good with these three friends. Verse 13, catch this. Verse 13, they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. Love that. You want to talk about devotion. Seven days and seven nights, they do nothing but sit with their friend who has lost everything. Have you ever done that? No one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Now, oftentimes, we throw Job's friends under the bus, don't we? Because if you know the rest of the story, you know their theology is all screwed up. It's what we call retribution theology. Job, this wouldn't have happened to you if you weren't a sinner. Job, this wouldn't happen to you if, you've done something, if you hadn't done something wrong. That's what's called retribution theology. Horrible way to read the scriptures. Horrible way to read the book of Job. We know why it happened to him. It's all because of the enemy, chapter 1. But Job's friends, up until chapter 2, verse 13, they're doing what they're supposed to do. They go and they, they sit. Devotion, seven days, seven nights. The problem that I see in our society, the problem that I see in our world, the problem I see in myself is I don't go and sit. I go and want to fix. See, the problem happens with Job's friends. Why? Because they open their mouth. 
why don't you just sit and sit? I've had people tell me before, I don't go to the hospital to visit people because it makes me really uncomfortable to go to the hospital and visit people. I don't know what to say. Guess what? You don't need to say anything. You just need to be there. If anything, pray and, and recognize God. But you don't need to say anything. I, I don't want to go to a funeral. I don't, I don't want to go visit that family who's just lost a loved one. I, that, that tragedy, that storm that we sang about just a few minutes ago, I don't want to go to that place. Those, I don't want to do that because it makes me really uncomfortable. It's really awkward. You know what? That's what God calls us to do. God calls us, wherever we're at, as inconvenient as it may be, to get up and leave our comfortable place and go and sit with our friends. We like to talk too much. We like to fix everything. And sometimes God's not interested in us talking. He's not inter interested in us fixing things. Only God can fix things. Sometimes he wants us just to sit, just to be. Solomon would say it this way in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 7, there is a time for everything. Time to keep silent. Can I say that again? There's a time to keep silent. I think, I think one of the problems that we have in our society is we think, we think busyness equals progress. We think busyness equals success. And if we're, not, if we're not saying something, if we're not doing something, if we're just being, if we're just sitting with those that are in some kind of tragedy, then somehow, way, Satan, the enemy, convinces us that it's unproductive. And I would argue that the entire concept of Sabbath, the entire concept of just sitting and being with God is the most productive thing you can do. But we don't. One other example of, of friends. Turn back, if, if you will, to 2 Samuel. Again, we were in 1 Samuel, but this time turn to 2 Samuel. And go back to chapter 12. Well, for the sake of time, let me just kept you up to date. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Just before 2 Samuel chapter 12, we have David, a man after God's own heart, the king, who is at his palace while all the other Israelites are off at battle. And he looks down. He's married, by the way. Not just once, but a couple times. And he looks at Bathsheba. And the text says he looks at Bathsheba. And he looks at Bathsheba. <laughs> Then he sends for Bathsheba, and you guys know the story. He sends for Bathsheba. She comes up. They do what they do. A month later, he finds out she's pregnant. There's consequences for sin. Those kids are going to die. But even before that, he sends Uriah, her husband, out to the front lines and has Uriah killed. He's not only an adulterer, he's, conspir he's conspiring for murder. This is a man after God's own Heart. Let's talk about his friend. Not Jonathan this time, but a man named Nathan. Listen to what it says, chapter 12. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan came to David, and he says to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but only one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his meager fare and drink from his cup, lie in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. Now, 
There came a traveler to, which this, to this rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guest who had come to him. Doesn't sound right to me. And it didn't sound right to David. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives... Now remember, David is the king. David has the power as far as kings go. When David was greatly kindled against, or anger was greatly kindled against the man, it says, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You're it. You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom, and I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? It goes on to indict David for his unfaithfulness. But here's the point I want you to get. Nathan was a friend to David, the fact that he wants to tell David, or he wants to tell David what David needs to hear. Not what he wants to hear, what he needs to hear. Do you, do you have somebody in your life, do you have a friend in your life who loves you enough to tell you the truth? In other words, there's no, there's no reason if we have a table up here and we all gather around the table and we all look the same, act like the same, dress the same, etc. There's no reason for us to have a table. How, how, many, how many friends do you have that are unbelievers? Well, I don't have many friends that are... Well, you need to make new friends. Seriously. Isn't that what Jesus did? Jesus didn't come to hang out with the Pharisees. Jesus didn't come out to hang out with the religious people. Jesus says it's the sick. It's the sick that need a physician. That's why he hang out with the sick. And yet we're so exclusive, we, the church, religious people, we, we've got it in our head that the only people I hang out with look like me, dress like me, act like me, that are around my table. Guess what? That's, that's not the gospel. Do you have friends in your life that will tell you what you, not what you want to hear, but what you need to hear? I, I hope you do. And if you don't have somebody like that, please, please, please get somebody like that. So how many friends do you have? Do you have friends like Jonathan that talk about devotion or commitment? Do you have friends or are you a friend like Job's friends who are willing to sit seven days, seven nights and not say a word? And when it becomes uncomfortable, you still maintain your silence until God calls you to speak? Instead of being a fixer, we point to the one who can really fix. Or maybe you need a Nathan in your life. Maybe you need somebody who will speak to you and and you're willing to hear them. Can I ask you to love yourself enough, love yourself enough to let others love you? Love yourself enough to let others in. Love yourself enough so that when God sends somebody to you, a Jonathan, Job's friends, a Nathan, that you're willing to receive them as God's messengers. The other side of the coin is when God sends you to be a Jonathan, when God sends you to be a friend who sits, when God sends you to be a friend like Nathan, are you willing to love your friend as God 
loves you. Love God, but love others by being their friend. Let's pray. Father, for your word, for your goodness, uh, for your graciousness, for your faithfulness, and for your mercy, I'm grateful. I guess when we think about friends, we think about sacrifice, and I think about the John 13 text where, where Jesus, knowing full well what's about to take place, that he's going to be betrayed by one of his closest friends, chooses to wash the feet of even the one who will sell him for 30 pieces of silver. We've misdefined friendship in our day and time, in our society, and maybe even in this church. I pray, God, that we'll be as devoted as you are to us. I pray that we'll be as committed as you are to us. I pray that we will forgive as you've forgiven. I pray that we'll give grace as you've given grace. I pray that we'll be willing to not only hear from Nathan and Jonathan and the friends that you send our way, but we'll also be the Nathan and Jonathan and the friends who sit with those that are struggling. God, if there's someone here today that's never experienced the love of Jesus Christ, truly know him intimately, I pray today is the day of salvation. I pray especially for those of us who are religious enough to think that we don't need Jesus, that think it will just be good enough today or tomorrow. God, forgive us. And shake our world till we have to acknowledge who you are. By the power of Christ, I pray.